From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that thinks that Scorpions' lyrics are more widely known than those of the Rolling Stones. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Rock You Like a Cyclone Typhoon Hurricane. Hey, Chad. I would like it to be noted that I advocated for uh, the podcast that was born in a crossfire hurricane, but was vetoed because in the case Nobody of knows Scor- that song. Scorpions v. Rolling Stones. <laughs> Any- anyway, so hurricanes today, Mike. As we're recording today, there is a hurricane that just finished that's sort of breaking apart, happening in Southern California, mm-hmm. Hurricane Hillary. There's another hurricane that is about to make landfall in Texas. And not too long ago, we just had a hurricane going through Hawaii, which helped contribute to a huge fire in Maui. Mm-hmm. So hurricanes are on our minds. Yeah. And so we thought it would be a timely time. We thought it would be timely to <laughs> discuss some of the science behind them. Yeah. Like, how do they form? Why do they form where they are? Why do they follow the paths that they do? And then one of the big things that was in the news was just how incredibly rare it is for California to be hit even by a tropical storm, much less an actual hurricane. On the news, there were reports that like the last time a named tropical storm hit California was like the 1930s or something. And the last time a hurricane hit was before the Civil War, like in 1858 or something like that. Hmm. So in that same amount of time, there have been hundreds of hurricanes that have hit our Gulf Coast and eastern United States. And so there's a reason for that. And so I hope our listeners will sort of understand why that inequality is there. Yeah. And so this is a topic that both Chad and I have done a lot of reading on. And in each of our classes, we touch on different aspects of weather events and so forth. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth the things that we know and teaching each other. And so this should be a fun episode. Yeah. So to start, let's talk about words here. So hurricanes are any large-scale weather events. Hurricanes themselves are what we call them here in the United States for things that happen just north of the equator and basically land in the United States for the most part. And they have a peak of activity between, say, June and November of the year. Mm -hmm. If you're down in Australia, they're called cyclones instead. And they have a peak on the opposite side of basically from October to May. And then there's also events called typhoons if you're in Asia or in India, really, mainly around India. And those can happen any time of the year. Oh, and I I should note about a third of all of these events that happen across the globe are exactly coming from Africa through the Gulf and on up. So we are mainly saying hurricanes, but that's primarily because that is the most prevalent situation happening. Mm -hmm. Those hurricanes are much more common than typhoons or cyclones generally in any given year. Mm -hmm. So in order to get into this, let's give sort of the, the meat away so that people can see what the pieces are that have to come together for it. Okay, Because there are two major pieces that have to happen so that a hurricane has what's called a closed feedback cycle. Basically, what needs to happen is you have to have some system that keeps feeding on itself to get stronger and stronger to make a big event like a hurricane. Okay. And for the purposes of our discussion today, we're going to say hurricane just because we live in the United States and that'll be easiest for us. But to those of our listeners around the world, we can equally well replace every word hurricane with cyclone or typhoon, depending on what makes the most sense to you. All right. So for this closed loop feedback, what we have to have are two things. First of all, we have to have it recycle itself. And so we need to have some sort of rotation happening in the weather event. And in order to recycle that energy and build to it and build to it and make it even bigger. Okay. And so we will talk about what causes that. 
And then we'll talk about the fact that we also need, for this particular system, water has to evaporate. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because basically for a hurricane, what's happening is we have winds that get stronger and stronger and stronger, and those winds help reinforce each other. And a lot of that wind energy is created through evaporating water. Because Mm -hmm. if you think about it, when water evaporates, if we're going from a liquid where the atoms can be like really close together to Mm -hmm. gas where they're spread apart really far, water can expand out to almost 2,000 times bigger volume than it would when it was a liquid. Hmm. So if you are evaporating a lot of water, all that new gas, all that new water vapor has to go somewhere. And in order to push that out, you're creating a lot more wind and a lot more forces behind it. So Hmm. what ultimately happens in a hurricane is it starts as a tropical storm that's feeding back on itself. But then the evaporation is sort of helping to increase the wind speed. And then that more wind makes more evaporation. And and we have this cycle. more evaporation makes more wind. Okay, I I understand what you're saying about this feedback loop. Yeah. And so we will be coming back to that later on. But I I thought because we're going to go off on some tangents here, I'm sure, (laughs) as is our want. And so everybody, we have a roadmap to get back to. (laughs) Right, right. So we've identified the target. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the rotation part. Okay. I think probably most people understand that hurricanes at least start out as a tropical occurrence, and then the storm system might eventually move up towards more temperate latitudes, but they always have their start in the tropical bands around the world. And that's true whether you're in the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Hemisphere. And so the first thing we need to understand are some large-scale air movement patterns. And so when you're saying tropical bands, you mean where on the Earth are we talking? Right. So the equal would be the most tropical of tropical on the planet, right? And then up to about like 23 degrees north and 23 degrees south, those are generally considered the tropics. And so that extends to like just up into Cuba, very southern Florida would just start getting into the tropical zone in the northern hemisphere. We're talking about like northern Africa for... Yeah, well, so the equator does run through Africa, but the vast majority of Africa is actually north of the equator. There's only about a third of Africa is actually south of the equator. And so Hmm. most of it is tropical and north of the equator. And so because the earth is a globe and the sun strikes the surface at differing angles across the surface of that globe, the equatorial regions are the parts of the globe that receive the most direct sunlight. Mm -hmm. And so that causes the most heating. And so we've talked in numerous occasions about what happens to gases when they heat as they expand and that causes them to be less dense. So they they rise. And so along this equatorial belt all the way around the planet, you have this massive upward movement of the air. And that actually can be actually measured by a barometer. It creates this belt of low pressure around the equator. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that air doesn't just escape off into space. What happens is once it reaches high enough, it starts to cool off and become a little bit more dense. But there's all this warm rising air coming up behind it. So all of that air either gets pushed to the north or pushed to the south. So away from the equator. Away from the equator. And so by about the time that that air gets to about 30 degrees north or 30 degrees south, it's cooled off enough and become dense enough that it starts to sink back to the surface of the planet. Yeah. So this would be like what's known as convection. Yeah. And so if if we had a, a diagram of a room like this, if we had a little heater in one little corner, it would heat up the air 
air, that air would go up to the top of the room and then kind of displace other things. And then once it got over to the other side of the room, it would be so cold, it would start sinking down again and we'd get the cycle. Yeah. And so if we were thinking about this for the globe, you would say, oh, okay, so we should have heating up at the equator and then all this air should make its way up to the, say, north or south poles and drop back down and then return back. That mm-hmm. would be a, if we had a full convection cycle. But it turns out our atmosphere is not thick enough for that to actually take place. Hmm. Yeah. So for us, it actually it breaks into three different bands. Right. The one that's most relevant to us is going to be the ones that occur between the equator and 30 degrees north and the equator and 30 degrees south, because that's where the where hurricanes form. And so that low pressure belt around the equator, that rising warm air has the tendency to evaporate a lot of water. So that's why the tropics are around the equator is because all that rising water then condenses into clouds and falls back to the ground. And so that's why we get tropical rainforest Mm -hmm. around the equator. So anyway, that air at 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south, once it gets back to ground level, then some of it then heads back towards the equator along the surface of the planet again. And some of it heads away from the equator again along the surface of the planet. All right. So that exists because we're on a globe. Okay. But it also, this globe that we're on is also rotating. And that rotation gives rise to this thing called the Coriolis effect, which I don't think I really understood the Coriolis effect. Probably the first five or six times it was explained to me. Mm. Um, so it's it's a somewhat of a slippery concept. And the way I try to explain it to students like in my ecology class is to recognize that the rotational velocity of different latitudes is different, right? So mm-hmm. if you were hovering in space above the North Pole looking straight down on planet Earth, the Earth would be rotating counterclockwise, right? Mm-hmm. And the equator would be the largest circle that you see. And so a person standing on the equator, it takes them a full 24 hours to make it back around to the same relative position, right? right? And that's also the biggest circle that their journey is the largest circle, right? And mm-hmm. so in order to make that complete circle in 24 hours, they're actually moving at a pretty fast rotational velocity. It's something like 1675 kilometers per hour. And then, so we're still perched above the North Pole, looking straight down at another person who's standing at, say, 30 degrees north, since we mentioned that a little bit ago, right? Okay. That would be a smaller circle. And so that person, to get back around to the exact same point in their rotation, would be traveling a smaller distance. It's sort of of like if we're running on a track together and you're in a different lane. Yeah, You've got a shorter distance to go. That's a great analogy. And so that person at 30 north would be going at a speed of about 1450 kilometers per hour. Up here, just for reference, we're at about 45 north. We're only going at about 730 kilometers per hour Hmm. in our rotational velocity, right? So there are different different velocities. Now, we don't notice it. I don't go outside and things aren't whipping past me at 730 kilometers per hour because everything else is also traveling along with me, right? including the air plus or minus wind. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've got this idea of differing velocities depending on what latitude you are. Now, imagine you have a large cannon that fires a cannonball and we're at the equator and we point our cannon straight north Okay, and we fire a cannonball straight north 
aiming at somebody, say, at 30 degrees north, mm -hmm. right? That cannonball is going to have the rotational velocity of the equator, 1675 kilometers per hour. And it's going to retain that rotational velocity as it makes its journey north. However, the ground that it's traveling over is going to be going slower and slower and slower. Right. And so from the point of view of the cannonball, if we were observing this from space, it would look like the cannonball was gaining ground that is deflecting to the right Mm -hmm. simply because the ground that it's going over is going slower and slower. And so it, it gains ground, it deflects to the right. Same thing if we had a cannon at 30 degrees north pointed straight south and fired a cannonball straight south, that cannonball would have the rotational velocity of 1450, which is the 30 degrees north. And so as it is traveling over the ground heading south, the ground that it's traveling over is actually going faster and faster relative to the rotational velocity of the cannonball. Right. And so yeah. that is going to be losing ground. And so something heading from 30 degrees north heading south is actually going to deflect to the left. Yeah. So, so it's the going reason, westward. Yeah. Yeah. It'll de it'll deflect westward because of the direction, the counterclockwise direction of the spin of the planet. Mm. So let's get back to this air mass that has descended to the ground at 30 north and is either going to sort of cycle back towards the equator or further north. That air that's coming back towards the equator is going to have that rotational velocity of 30 degrees north. Mm -hmm. And as it's moving towards the equator, the ground it's passing over is going faster and faster. So it deflects to the west. Right. And so consequently, we get prevailing winds between the equator and 30 north heading east to west. Yep. So if you're in that part of the world, the weather comes out of the east. Okay. So it heads towards the west. Does anywhere in the United States experience that? So it turns out that our Gulf Coast, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, is about right at 30 degrees north. And then Florida sticks down further down into the middle 20 degrees north. Okay. And so, yeah, if you are in Florida, the prevailing winds bring weather out of the east off of the Atlantic. But if you are north of there, the prevailing winds are coming from the other direction. And that's why up here in Oregon at 45 north, where we are, our weather comes in from the west. Right. And when I talk to my mom, for instance, she's always saying like, oh, I'm getting your weather now. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, a few days after I experience really hot weather, then she experiences it a few days after that. Yeah, that's right. Like growing up, watching the nightly news weather report, right? The weather maps were always where we are and to the west of us, right? Because yeah. that's where the weather's coming from. It wouldn't make any sense to show where we are and to the east of us because that that's not where our weather yeah. predominantly comes from where we grew up. But in Florida, because they are in this zone that is south of 30 degrees north, their weather is coming in off of the Atlantic from the east. Okay. And so, and so hopefully that this is starting to help people understand all of the hurricane paths that they've seen of these hurricanes coming from the Atlantic, making their way to the west and sort of striking the Gulf Coast, Florida, eastern seaboard of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. There's never been a hurricane that has originated in the Gulf of Mexico and gone to Africa. Right. That just can't happen because the prevailing winds are in the opposite direction. They're always pushing to the west. In that between zero and 30 degrees north. Right. And we should yeah. say this also happens in the southern hemisphere in exactly. exactly the same way. And it's exactly the same science. And so the winds we're talking about, these prevailing winds are also basically from plus or minus 30 is pushing everything west. Right. Whether we're above or below the equator is 
pushing things to the West. Right. And, you know, early sailors would have known about this as well. And that's why transit Atlantic sailing vessels, yeah. that's why their routes were as they were, right? If they were coming from Europe or Africa to the West, they would be in that belt of prevailing wind going to the West. And if they were going back in the other direction, they would be further up North. Yeah. So, and that's why those are called the trade winds. That's those. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Oh, by the way, another interesting side note here. You had talked about air pressure at the equator and so forth. Those are low pressure because that's mm-hmm. all this air is expanding out, going up and then dumping the rain and so forth. That's a low pressure cell. If you mm-hmm. remember looking at weather patterns and so forth, they would always have those cells actually kind of move around. And so you'll see these things where on the weather map, they'll have a circle with an L in it. And that just mm-hmm. means that that's one of these areas where you expect a lot of rain nearby because water is evaporating up and then it gets dumped someplace. Right. And then if you have a high pressure region, then that tends to be in when you have sunny skies and so forth. Because the air descending has the tendency to push away any sort of moisture that might otherwise be getting drawn in there. Yeah. And if you think about like weather maps and so forth, it's normally when a warm front or a cold front are pushing through, that's when you have a lot of storms and so forth. But so let's bring this back then to maybe a hurricane situation. So Mm -hmm. we have the prevailing winds are to the west. So once we have a hurricane or something or a cyclone or a typhoon, they're all moving westerly unless they happen to pass the 30 degree mark. And so it is possible, for instance, hurricanes do follow down the coast of Brazil, for instance. They're doing the Mm -hmm. same sort of a thing. But these are all forming at the tropics. They all start as a tropic storm. And that's all coming because the Coriolis effect. So this tendency for things that if you're moving away from the equator will appear to move easterly. And if you're moving towards the equator, it will appear to move westerly. When some of these cells just kind of bump into each other, they will cause a little bit of rotation happening. You know, if you have two of these things kind of running into each other, then, you know, one is moving east, one's moving west, and they can start a rotation pattern. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of think about regarding the rotation in the northern hemisphere, if you sort of have a picture of what a hurricane looks like uh, from space or something, right? There's the eye of the hurricane. And I sort of think of that as like the lowest of the low pressure, almost like there's a vacuum right there pulling air up into it. And so it's drawing air in from all around. And that air that is being drawn in from the north is going to be deflecting slightly to the west. Mm -hmm. And the air that's being drawn in from the south is going to be deflecting slightly to the east. And so coming from the north, it bends to the left. Coming from the south, it bends to the right. And then the eye is sort of like a gear between those two forces. And you can see that it would start to rotate that gear in a counterclockwise way. Yeah. And so, again, back to our roadmap here. If we're going to have a hurricane, we need something that is recycling itself. And so it's the Coriolis effect that causes the tropical storm to start to form in the first place. The Mm -hmm. Coriolis effect always makes it happen so that you get some air recycled, basically. And the energy is not leaving that system. It's kind of stuck in the the whole system there to continue building and so forth. And it's also interesting because it's the Coriolis effect that leads to all of this stuff. Tropical storms do not form exactly at the equator. Hmm. They're always a little bit above or a little bit below, but they're never at the equator. And so if you want to avoid these storms, (laughs) that's where you should go. You should just go to the equator. Okay. So let's build on the next piece of this. When we start having winds happening, then water starts to evaporate. And as I said at the top of the show, that means that this water is expanding out rapidly. And so then all that new water vapor has to go someplace. And that leads to stronger winds. So let's break off and talk about what evaporation does. 
really quickly. Mm-hmm. First of all, we probably think about evaporation, at least for myself, I think about how it's cooling down a surface, right? Because in order to change from a liquid to a gas, that material has to have more energy. And so it's actually pulling energy away from whatever it's sitting on to do that. And that's why we sweat, for instance, right? Our, mm-hmm. We've developed this ability that we our bodies know like, all right, I'm too hot. I'm going to release some extra liquid to the surface of the skin. And then that will evaporate and that'll cool me down. And so then I'll feel better, right? So evaporation is always pulling things out and leaving things behind it a little bit cooler than it was before. Mm -hmm. But so there are a couple of things that affect how much evaporation is happening. The first thing is probably the most obvious is temperature, Mm -hmm. right? If we have a vessel that is hotter and hotter, the closer it is to the boiling temperature of water, then the more evaporation is going to happen. And this is why if you're cooking or something, if you're trying to boil a pot of water, the closer and closer you get to actually boiling, then not only is it evaporating, you can see more steam coming off the top of it, but you also see bubbles actually forming inside and it's boiling, right? Mm -hmm. But also the reason why as soon as you take off the heat, it stops boiling is because it cools down. The last few uh, molecules of steam coming off of it are cooling down the the liquid itself so much that it, it stops boiling almost immediately, right? Mm-hmm. And so temperature is clearly one of the dials that we can turn to control how much evaporation is happening. Right. But, but I think one that a lot of people don't think so much about is airspeed. Mm-hmm. Now, we kind of know this intuitively. Well, the reason you blow on coffee, for instance, to cool it down is because by changing the airspeed above the coffee, you're actually evaporating more of the coffee away from it and cooling down the coffee for yourself. Right. And this is probably not what a lot of people think. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking like, no, it's my air from my mouth is cooling it down. Is that what people think? Really? Well, but here's the thing, like to be the most efficient, normally when I've ever tried to cool things off, I would try to like make sort of a dent in whatever <laughs> liquid I was blowing on. Right. Uh-huh. Thinking that uh-huh. that's really going to cool it down really fast. Uh-huh. But it turns out it's more efficient if you blow across it, sort of like right. a flute, right? Because than... then you're letting more of it evaporate that much faster. Right. So even though we're here talking about hurricanes, there you go. You learned a little something extra on how to cool down your coffee. <laughs> okay. But another example of this, actually, that people can test at home or while you're driving your car even, is you can blow on the back of your hand. If you open your mouth wide and go, oh, it's hot air. Uh-huh. I just it's, did the, it. it's the temperature of your body, right? So you can feel that being hot. But now if you purse your lips, but if you do that, it feels very cool, right? Right. It's the same temperature air coming out of your body. So it should feel hot. But it doesn't because instead what's happening now is that the airflow is so fast that you're actually evaporating water off the back of your hand. Got it. All right. So let's put those together. So for the rate of evaporation, we've got two dials. We can change the temperature or we can change the wind speed. Mm -hmm. So for a hurricane, what's happening here then is Coriolis effect is causing the tropical storms to rotate and sort of recycle that energy. But this extra wind then is blowing across the ocean and it's causing more water to evaporate than it normally would. Right. So now we've increased how much evaporation is happening. So now we have more air, we have more wind, the more wind, the more evaporation, and you get this closed feedback loop. And that also helps explain why there's a hurricane season in most places, because the uh, variation in the ocean surface temperature, these hurricanes happen when the ocean surface temperatures are at their maximum. Yeah. So here in the Northern Hemisphere, as the sun is starting to head back down towards the Southern Hemisphere, but it's been baking all summer and getting hotter and hotter. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and it's important to note that hurricanes can only form when the water is greater than about 80 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about Mm -hmm. 26 or 27 degrees Celsius. So you cannot have a hurricane form too far away from the equator because the water is just not warm enough for it to happen. Right. 
And so that's how they ultimately form is because they have this feedback mechanism to get them stronger and stronger and stronger. Can we talk about Atlantic hurricanes? I was going to talk a little bit that the Coriolis effect, that leads to why we have all the ocean currents as well. Uh-huh. Well, that's very relevant because what that means is the Coriolis effect means that the warm water in the Atlantic is moving in a westward direction and it warms up the entire Gulf Coast the Caribbean, Gulf of Mexico, and then it doesn't have anywhere else to go. And so this warm water mass moves up the eastern United States, east Mm -hmm. coast of the United States, and then across the North Atlantic and over to northern Europe, actually. And it keeps northern Europe much warmer than it otherwise would be. Yeah. If you look on the other side of North America, the same overall rotation is true, But the West Coast of the United States is experiencing the cooler side of that cycle, right? So the warm water in the Pacific is moving in a westward direction, and Mm -hmm. it has the effect of dumping all that heat energy into Southeast Asia right? and up the eastern coast of, of Asia. And so then by the time that loop comes back down the western side of North America, it's cooled off. And so there's cold water coming down the west coast of North America. And that's why our coastline on the west coast is very different from the coastline on the east coast. Yeah. As my niece can probably remember very clearly, when she was younger, she came out here. She had swum in the Atlantic Ocean many, many times and enjoyed it because it's nice warm water over there. And first time she came out to visit me out here, she immediately ran into the water and then did not enjoy that sensation. Yeah, it's funny because whenever I have visitors and we plan like a day at the coast, I always tell them, well, you're going to want to bring several layers and probably even a stocking cap. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's it's June. And I'm like, well, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> yeah. So same latitude, but very different. And that's because of those ocean currents brought about by the Coriolis effect. Yeah. Yeah. So that warm water then is feeding that heat energy into this growing and growing hurricane system. Mm-hmm. And and then another interesting thing about the Atlantic hurricanes is all of the Sahara Desert is at about the same latitude as Florida. Mm. I don't know if most people realize the latitude of the Sahara is mm-hmm. is there. And so that's this really hot dry air mass moving in a westward direction. And so all of this really hot, dry air then finally gets pushed out over the Atlantic, where it just starts pulling up water, starts evaporating water. And so that's why those storms form in the eastern Atlantic. And then the prevailing winds push them to the west, to the west, to the west. And that warm water belt in the tropical Atlantic continues to feed that hurricane. And I remember growing up watching the coverage of hurricanes during hurricane season, you know, they would always come from the eastern Atlantic and then somewhere hit the Gulf Coast or eastern United States somewhere. Then they would always, it looked like they would sort of bounce off North America, right? Mm. They'd sort of like be coming in a westward direction and sort of tail to the north a little bit. And then about the time they hit, you know, South Carolina or Georgia or Florida, they'd start heading back to the east. And Mm -hmm. to my novice brain, I was like, well, okay, once they hit land, is there sort of some sort of ricochet or what is going on there? Yeah. And, And that's actually due to things we've already talked about. By the time the hurricane crosses up into like northern Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, now it's north of 30 degrees. 
And so the prevailing winds are going in an easterly direction. And so that starts to push the storm system back to the east. And if it still has a little bit of that northward momentum, those are the hurricanes that just sort of rip up the eastern seaboard and like sometimes make it all the way to like New Jersey and New York, for example. Yeah. So in order to form the hurricane, then we need that warm water in order to feed the evaporation, in order to feed the winds and let the winds then create the feedback loop. So let's talk real briefly about how we kill a hurricane. Mm. The first way for it to lose its strength then is for it to reach landfall. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as it's over land, now you've taken away all the that evaporation. And now those winds, well, they'll stick around for a little bit, but they'll break apart you know, within a few days pretty quickly. And so without that evaporation component to it, then the whole engine just stops pretty quickly. Right. Doesn't have that warm water to keep feeding it. Yeah. And the warm mm-hmm. water is actually important because you mentioned a little bit ago about some of the hurricanes can go on up the seaboard and can ultimately land in, say, New Jersey or someplace like that. But that water up there is even colder than it is down south. And so that is also generally hurricanes don't make it that far up because they'll fizzle out in the colder water as well. Because Mm -hmm. having a colder temperature means you have less evaporation. And so it takes a little bit longer, but still the hurricane will eventually fizzle out. Yeah. As it passes over colder and colder water. Yeah. Yeah. There's less evaporation. So these two mechanisms, the Coriolis effect, the evaporation rate and all that, that's answers a lot of the questions of what the effects that we see with hurricanes, right? And yet we haven't talked about why it's so rare in California. Right. That was one of the things all over the news that was talked about often in this last week was how incredibly rare that a California experiencing a hurricane or a tropical storm was, but they didn't really ever get to the why. And so I hope our listeners are kind of getting a mental image of why it is that they come across the Atlantic and hit our Gulf Coast. And if you try to do the same sort of thing on the western side of Central America, which would be relatively similar latitude, then you can see that pretty quickly that storm system would just be kind of getting carried out into the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? They might hit Hawaii. That's why Hawaii will experience hurricanes Mm -hmm. relatively frequently. But it has to be just a very specific set of circumstances that allows a storm to build up fast enough and then get far enough north that it starts to bend back to the east just a little bit for it to hit California, right? Yeah. Yeah. So because of those things, that is why they are so incredibly rare in California and why this was such a freak event. Yeah. What is notable about this is the last two times there were storms of these magnitudes that hit California, these kinds of hurricanes, were something like roughly 90 years ago and then another 70 or so years before that. Yeah. So maybe two times in the last hundred and some odd, 160 or so years, there were these magnitude of storms hitting California. However, with climate change and increasing surface ocean temperatures, that is going to set up the possibility of an increase in frequency of these kinds of storm systems reaching that sort of critical temperature of the ocean water and building up to a degree that California might start to experience more of these kinds of large storms going forward. Yeah. For this particular storm, we have to admit, I mean, it's about 80 years cycle, it seems. Mm -hmm. Uh, We kind of fit in that. So, you know, you may say this one event might still be a a freak thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we have El Nino this year. We have some other things that are not Mm man-made. But as you say, yeah, as the planet continues to warm, one indicator of that would be that we would have these events more frequently than 80 years. Right. Right. And I believe... 
this past summer has been incredibly warm water in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. And so we are definitely not out of hurricane season this year. Mm -hmm. And so I'm concerned about that, whether some of these tropical storms that are out there churning their way to the West are going to benefit from all of that heat energy that's in the ocean and, and build these storms up into really large hurricanes still this season and heading into the coming years. No, it would not be surprising if we ran out of the alphabet this year. R right, right. <laughs> start start getting into the Greek letters. Yeah. Yeah, well, hopefully that helps our listeners understand, you know, what it is about hurricanes that causes them to travel as they do, why they tend to hit Florida much more frequently than California. Yeah, cool. Cool. All right, thanks, Mike. Yeah. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rudy Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that will help other people find our podcast. If you have questions about nature or science and you would like us to address it, email us at crisscrossingscienceatgmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening.